This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Heating at the poles will determine the fate of this life on Earth. Jet stream winds delivering extreme cold, heat, or storms to the northern hemisphere are already changing. American expert Matt Osman breaks new research for us. At the same time, we are seeing the first and largest human impact on the planet. It is threatening human settlements, roads, and pipelines in the far north as the permafrost thaws. Forests fall over, buildings fall over, and roads crack open. Oil and gas pipelines break, even as our energy crisis develops. From Austria, Dr. Annette Barsch brings us the new big picture of the Arctic risk. When the last great glaciers finally pulled back from North America and Europe, Earth warmed an incredible 6 degrees C, over 10 degrees Fahrenheit, just to reach the climate you feel today. That took about 20,000 years. Now, in the worst-case scenario, humans may heat the planet another 6 degrees C in less than 200 years. Not much of the life you recognize could survive that. Even wilder, Dr. Osman's team found increasing greenhouse gases are not enough to explain that kind of temperature rise that they saw in the last 20,000 years. When the great white ice sheets stopped reflecting sunlight back to space, that added as much heat or more than greenhouse gases. In the last couple of decades, Arctic sea ice has shrunk, and Greenland is melting at a furious pace. Snow covers the Arctic lands less and less each year. That loss of reflection, called albedo change, adds to warming coming from human greenhouse gas emissions. Dr. James Hansen warned about all this, a major shift in Earth's energy imbalance. That is why we spend so much time on Radio EcoShock investigating changes in the Arctic, a place hardly mentioned in mainstream news. Plus, as we heard from scientist Nico Wunderling in my last November 3rd show, Cascading Tipping Points, new studies show ice melt on Greenland is key. It is the first planetary tipping point. When megatons of fresh water pour off Greenland into the Atlantic, Earth systems, from the temperate weather to Amazon dieback to the South Pole, can be triggered. Concurrent with thawing permafrost land, Greenland is melting now. So I ask for your curiosity and patience as we dig into scientific reports in this show. What we now know about the Great Arctic Shift. Here we go. High above our heads runs a fast-moving river of air. We call it the jet stream. This river flows, meanders, rushes by, sometimes splits. It is also known as the polar vortex, and for those in the northern hemisphere, the North Atlantic jet stream. Fluid in the atmosphere, paths of the jet stream, move north or south in mere days, driving large changes in weather down below, and you felt it. When the jet stream trends north for a while, Spain can dry up and burn while Scandinavia gets more rain and snow. Famines in history are attributed to changes in the jet stream. But will this great wind track change along with the climate? Food systems and economies may depend on the answer. We cannot know what changes unless we know what it was before, but winds like the jet stream leave no tracks. Or do they? 
A team of scientists led by the American Matthew Osman found records reflecting the jet stream year by year in drill cores taken from Greenland ice. They are very helpful. Matthew B. Osman is a postdoctoral research associate at the Climate Systems Center at the University of Arizona. Measuring characteristics of ice, Dr. Osman and his colleagues created a long-time map of winds, climate, drought, and rain since the Middle Ages and beyond, and we haven't had that before, and there are some surprises. Matt Osman, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hi, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here. How would you describe the North Atlantic jet stream that is a big part of your studies? The jet stream over the North Atlantic is really just a small piece of a much larger ribbon of prevailing, fast-moving westerly winds that circles the Arctic. So these winds are often called the polar jet stream, which, you know, despite the fact that they're mostly situated in the middle latitudes, is actually a fitting name because what they effectively do is serve as a barrier between cold air masses that are situated to the north and much warmer air masses that are situated to the south. Now, I think the most important thing to understand about the jet is that it is far from being this stationary feature. It meanders, it buckles, it bends, and it breaks as it moves from west to east, and these individual changes tend to actually be responsible for a large degree of the weather variations that we see throughout eastern North America and Europe not just on the day-to-day, week-to-week timescales that we see on our weather forecast, but also on much longer timescales. To me, tracking upper-level winds over centuries sounds just impossible. How can ice contain that story? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that we're learning that fewer and fewer things are, are truly impossible uh, in our quest to understand Earth's climate history. So it's actually a great question for exactly the reason that you state. So... Proxies of climate, such as those we find in polar ice from Greenland, are for the most part not overly sensitive to high-altitude changes in winds. So the reason we're able to recover this signal in Greenlandic ice seems to be due to the fact that winds associated with the polar jet stream actually extend all the way to the ground. Near the surface, the, the winds are weaker, but they're often referred to as the North Atlantic storm track because they're associated with the arrival of mild temperatures and increased precipitation. So what we were able to do in this study is leverage the fact that precipitation and temperature patterns across Greenland are quite sensitive to changes in the storm tract and and therefore the jet stream. So we analyzed variations in the amount of snowfall archived year after year in about 50 Greenland ice cores, as well as the chemical makeup of the water molecules that actually comprise those snow layers. And we could discern not just how much precipitation fell in a given year, but also about the temperatures that those air masses were exposed to back in time. So using this spatial patchwork of these signals, we actually were able to isolate an imprint of the jet stream during the past. Well, this really matters to people in the U.S. Northeast and uh, and people in Britain and Ireland, of course. And Britain endured a few years of being the target of repeated storms. As recently as 2012, they were in this storm track. They couldn't get out of it. Are those things related to the jet stream? I, I'll say it's, it's a slippery slope, I think, to attribute any single weather event or even a, a small collection of events to global warming in and of itself, especially when you're talking about something as dynamic as the jet stream. But, yeah, it's my understanding that the extreme rains and, and flooding that afflicted Britain during 2012 were indeed the result of this anomalous southward meander in the jet stream and an increase in its intensity. 
In general here, uh, Britain's location is at the perimeter of the North Atlantic Ocean Basin, so it makes it extremely susceptible to these changes in the jet stream. I will add, though, one of the really neat but somewhat sobering things to come out of our reconstruction was that we were able to go back and look at several past societal calamities in England and Ireland in tandem with our reconstruction of jet stream changes. So just as an example here, we found two of the largest salmon events in Britain and Ireland occurred during the years in 1728 and 1740. Um, And these years were associated with winds that blew at about half their normal intensity. And and the latter of these two events in 1740, it's actually estimated to have cost the lives of of upwards of half a million people. Historical documents report these years as being unusually cold and dry, which is exactly what we'd expect from a strong diminishing in jet speed. And so... All said, what we're able to do is to begin to use our reconstructed results for the past millennium as a sort of prologue for possible future events. In a PNAS paper published this September, your team analyzed ice records going back 1,250 years to the early Middle Ages. Did you find the jet stream has moved outside its historic paths in recent years? Yeah, that's a good question. There does appear to be a slight northward trend in the jet stream's average position during the last few decades. But so far, its average location does not appear to be wholly distinguishable beyond the relatively large range of natural variability that we see in the jet, at least from a statistical standpoint. We recently spoke with Dr. Judah Cohen, a forecasting expert at AER and MIT. His work suggests patterns of stretching, as he called it, in the polar jet stream can help predict mega snow events in the U.S. Northeast, as well as in Russia and northern China. You studied the changing paths of the polar jets. Do you think the waviness, the meandering, has increased in the last century or two? Our study focused specifically on the zonal mean, mean annual component of the jet stream. That is, we averaged across all longitudes of the North Atlantic for the westerly wind component for the entirety of the year. So there are actually some positives as well as some caveats to this approach. Uh, One positive is that our approach is quite intuitive. We can essentially boil down the jet stream's position and intensity for a given year as essentially one number each. Um, So using this method, we in general, don't find evidence in our ice core-based reconstruction of strong changes in intensity during the last one to two centuries. But when we think about quantifying waviness in a rigorous way, you know, my take is that it really requires one to look across two dimensions, so north and south as well as east and west. So I think it's reasonable to question whether our approach would actually capture changes in waviness. But that being said, one would suspect that any increase in waviness could lead to a decrease in zonal intensity. So Overall, I would say that this is still very much an open area of research. In a 2018 paper, climate Michael Mann suggested the jet stream would slow down with more ridges and troughs. And in your paper, you project that the North Atlantic jets may move north after 2060. Did I get that right? And and how would we know if that was happening? Yeah, you got that exactly right. So we looked at projections of zonal intensity across a large multi-model ensemble of climate projections, but we didn't see any clear evidence from this ensemble in a shift in jet stream intensity, at least in the same way that we see for changes in jet stream position. That's not to say there won't necessarily be changes in the jet stream's intensity in the future. It simply says that the models don't agree on this issue. The differences could very well be definitional relating, you know, simply to how one defines jet stream intensity 
or over what time period. So, for example, as I'm aware, the Michael Mann study you, you mentioned, it, it focused only on summer changes. Uh, we studied the mean annual component, so different seasons could very well have different jet stream responses due to differing mechanisms at play. Quasi-resonant amplification is, is really just one. In either case, you know, my opinion is that this is really an area of research that demands much attention in the future. Well, along with a group of very strong scientists, you measured even earlier times with a brand new paper just published in Nature. Your team mapped Earth's climate for the last 24,000 years since the peak of the last ice age, and there were surprises. Did the world warm gradually and evenly over the last 24,000 years? Uh, no, no, it certainly did not warm in an even or even gradual fashion during the last 24,000 years. So on a global basis, we see essentially a three-part sequence during the last 24,000 years. So from 24 to 17,000 years ago, Earth is in this relatively stable, ubiquitously cold state. This is the last ice age. Uh, by 17 to 9,000 years before present, Earth enters a period of, of relatively rapid global temperature rise and ice sheet decay. This is known as the deglaciation. And finally, by the time that we get to about nine to 7,000 years before present, the Earth does begin to enter this somewhat stable period where Earth's temperatures slowly warm towards the pre-industrial interval. So this is a period known as the Holocene. It's the, the period where human societies have flourished. It represents the world that you and I know today, or you know, at least the one that our grandparents knew. There are papers and articles saying the world warmed since the development of agriculture some 10,000 years ago. The presumption has been humans were already warming the world before the Industrial Revolution. Do we have to change that story? Well, I'm not entirely sure the exact studies you refer to, but I can say this. What our reconstruction shows is that Earth probably warmed gradually during the last 10,000 years, probably by no more than a degree Celsius. From our analysis, though, it doesn't appear to be the case that we would necessarily need to invoke human influence to explain the vast majority of that change, especially in the early part of the last 10,000 years. Rather, what we see is that temperature changes during this period seem to be related to a reduction in sort of the residual component of these once vast northern hemisphere ice sheets. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with our guest, Dr. Matt Osman from the University of Arizona. He led several new papers revealing past climate changes in the North Atlantic with lessons for our future. In another study published in Nature Geoscience this year, your team describes long periods of increasing snow on Greenland because of warming. Matt, how does warming drive more snow in Greenland? That's a great question. So there's something of a, of a tug of war that occurs when thinking about what causes an ice cap to either grow or decay during periods of warming. So warming can cause either growth or decay, right? So today we observe melting rates that are outpacing the rate of annual snowfall atop ice caps on an annual basis. But in past centuries, these ice caps would actually expand due to increased levels of precipitation brought about by warmer regional temperatures. The difference between the past and present appears to be quite simply just the severity of recent human-caused warming. You know, as we all know, right, the existence of ice in any environment is really threshold limited. If it gets too hot, it melts away. In a way, what I'm hearing is that 
if our warming was not so severe, we might warm the climate a little bit. That would cause more snow to fall on Greenland, and that would balance out whatever melted off. But we've pushed it beyond that so that even with more snow, we're losing absolute mass from Greenland. Yep, you, you've interpreted that exactly correct. Essentially, when we talk about this tug of war, uh, it seems that melt in the last few decades has begun to win out over increased accumulation. But the paper says, quote, the ice core evidence could indicate a recent reversal in the response of West Greenland ice caps to climate change. Talk to us about that reversal. So observations from satellites and ice cores as well as model simulations, each of these things unequivocally show that the majority of Greenland's coastal ice caps are losing mass today. They're melting due to rising temperatures. So what we found in our study is that temperature rise and the loss of these polar ice caps actually may not have always gone hand-in-hand. For the particular ice caps that we studied using our ice cores, we found that within small degrees of warming in the past, these ice caps actually tended to grow. And this was because increased snowfall brought about by mildly warmer temperatures allowed them to do so. In the past, this increase in snowfall could outpace the rate of increased melting. But today, we're warming so much that it appears that the fundamental relationship between temperature rise and coastal ice cap growth has actually begun to reverse. So ice mass loss today from increased melting is outpacing the rate of ice mass loss from increased snowfall. Scientists have been wrestling with something called the Holocene temperature conundrum. What is that, and has it been resolved? The Holocene temperature conundrum reflects the stark discrepancy regarding how global temperatures responded or trended during the last 10,000 years. So model physics predict there should be a warming whereas climate proxies by themselves have seemed to suggest that there was this long-term cooling trend. We've taken a stab at answering this approach and using our approach that combines models and proxies together. And our results really are are quite fascinating. Um, When we look at our own proxy compilation, what we find is indeed this clear long-term global temperature cooling trend. And this is what prior authors have also shown. But curiously, when you combine those same proxies with models in a way where the models are pushed to become more consistent with the proxies, what we find is a clear Holocene warming trend, which is similar to past modeling results. And we think this is happening for two reasons. First, our new approach actually explicitly models the seasonal response of the proxies themselves to climate. So this is known as a proxy forward modeling approach, and it helps us to account for the fact that proxies are usually biased towards a given season. We're essentially removing this bias in our approach. The second reason is, simply put, our results are truly providing a global average in this case. We are actually averaging all places on Earth instead of having to infer changes in places where we don't have proxies. So this is actually a really exciting result, and it suggests to us we're one step closer to resolving the Holocene temperature conundrum. So just for our listeners, I gather that proxies are things that they may be like uh, tiny animals that collect calcium. They may be what you measure out of a glacier borehole. But it's real-world information that leads to a proxy. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly correct. These are real observations of climate before we have, you know, what we consider observations today. And I'll just give a quick example of this. So when we think about modern observations, one of the simplest examples that comes to mind is a mercury thermometer. But one of the 
ideas I actually might pose is that a mercury thermometer is, in fact, a proxy. All we're doing in this case is leveraging the physical association that exists between the expansion of mercury in a glass vial with temperature. And a proxy works in fundamentally the same way. We're leveraging some underlying physical relationship between a, a physical parameter or a chemical parameter of the Earth system that we can measure uh, in an archive that extends into the past. And we can infer indirectly from those measurements a property of... I was shocked to learn from your paper the world has warmed a little over 6 degrees C since the time of the big continent-covering glaciers. That seems like a lot. Did I get that right? Uh, you sure did. Listen, these changes are a lot, but they're not wholly unexpected. When we're talking about the last glacial maximum 20,000 years ago, we're really talking about a world that was different than the one we know today. So sea levels were nearly 130 meters lower. CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere were less than half that of today. And we had these massive ice sheets that covered much of the northern hemisphere. So collectively, these changes imparted a huge offset in Earth's radiative balance. It was just a lot colder in the last ice age. And you find changing greenhouse gases are not enough to explain that kind of temperature rise in less than 20,000 years. What was the other big driver warming this planet then? So we found there are two main things that appear to have contributed to the temperature rise of the last 20,000 years. So the first is, as you mentioned, greenhouse gases. The second, however, is changes in albedo. Both of these were probably of general comparable magnitude in their contribution. Uh, we also see that other things were probably also important in explaining regional patterns, for example, ocean circulation and the orbital changes during this time period. But albedo and greenhouse gases appear to explain over 90% of the global temperature change during this period. So this is an overwhelming majority, which is an important context to consider. Today, we dramatically changed Earth's radiation budget for both of these components, primarily by releasing massive amounts of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, which I, I should also know as an aside is also causing a similar feedback where we're continuing to decrease the albedo in the higher latitudes due to the loss of sea ice and seasonal snow cover, even though these northern hemisphere ice sheets no longer exist. In a Radio Ecoshock interview, we heard most of the Greenland ice sheet melted away sometime in the last million years. Rock samples recovered from a deep military drill in the 1960s showed contact with air within that time period. Is that your understanding as well? Uh, this is a little bit outside my expertise, but that's my general understanding, uh, yeah. That particular sample came from Camp Century, I believe, which is only 100 kilometers inland from the coast. So I would say it's somewhat challenging to know just from this coastal site uh, how much of the interior ice sheet was lost. But yes, it does suggest a good portion of the ice sheet was lost at least once in the last million years. It does raise a, a broader point, though, that I think more and more we're learning just how susceptible ice sheets like Greenland are to relatively small perturbations in the global mean climate. A good example comes from looking at a period known as the last interglacial. This was about 120,000 years ago. Uh, this is the last globally warm period similar to the current interglacial we live in today, so the Holocene. Our best estimates currently place global temperatures as being only slightly warmer during this period as in the pre-industrial, so perhaps only a little cooler than the early 21st century, but we have a fairly strong indication that the Greenland ice sheet was considerably smaller during that period than today. 
So the point is this. When you give an ice sheet enough time, thousands of years, it will adjust in a sensitive manner to changes in climate, and we can certainly expect that moving into the future. So you say thousands of years. We needn't worry about Greenland suddenly cracking apart and falling into the sea in the next decade or six. No, I don't, I don't think we need to worry about in the next decade or six, but it's something that should be on our minds when we think about these sort of centennial to millennial timescales moving into the future. It's going to be an ongoing problem, irrespective of continued greenhouse gas emissions at this point. Can we say the ice records have never seen a climate change as fast as the one we humans are forcing now? Well, it's a matter of context and perspective. So in the last 10,000 years, no, not to my understanding, not even, not even close. If we go further back in time, we do see evidence of abrupt warming in the Greenland ice cores during the last glacial period. These are known as Dansgaard Oscar events, uh, otherwise known as DO events. And during these periods, Greenland is thought to have warmed by around 10 degrees or more over the span of decades. But these were probably due to regional, you know, sort of pseudo-catastrophic events, things like glacial outburst floods. So that's a lot of warming in a short amount of time, but that degree of change is probably localized in space. And moreover, each of these events is probably preceded by a relatively quick cooling back to normal, so to speak. So the important thing to get out of this is that the context of today is that we're pumping carbon into the atmosphere at a rate probably not seen on Earth in at least several millions of years. So we're performing this massive experiment on our planet right now. It's one that I don't think the ice core archive, as, as old and informative as it is, can really provide a perfect analog for. Matt Osmond, how much time did you spend on Greenland? Uh, I've been lucky, <laughs> or unlucky, I suppose, depending on your, your perspective. I spent collectively several months of my life living on various glaciers and ice sheets. And you led several breaking papers in the last year or so. What do you hope to do next? I hope to continue using these new methods, especially the, the ones that we've applied to understand the global climate evolution since the last glacial maximum. I hope to apply these same methods to deeper portions of Earth's rich climate history. We have, you know, potentially 4.6 billion years of history that we can look back on and try to understand and disentangle in a really fundamental way in order to inform our future. And so I look forward to uh, pursuing these broader aims. And we're just finished up the COP26 in Glasgow, and I don't know how successful that really is, but I wonder what is the intersection between the type of new science that you and your colleagues are bringing out and the decisions that we as individuals and as societies will have to make? Do you see a nexus there? Is, it, is there something that drives directly from your work into our present problems? Well, you know, it remains to be seen, Alex, I think, in terms of seeing what comes out of these recent studies and, and any forthcoming in terms of the societal response. One hopes that these results, which provide context and new understanding of the climate system across different timescales, one hopes that that context will be used in a fruitful way, I think, at a societal scale in order to allow us to affect positive change and move the climate system and, and therefore societies in a fruitful direction into the future. Dr. Matthew Osman, thank you for finding time for our listeners. Thank you. Radio EcoShock. When the Soviet government dumped chemicals and atomic waste in the Arctic, they knew it would stay entombed in the ice.
The first Arctic cities were built on permanently frozen ground. Vast pipelines supplying Europe with natural gas this winter for heat and industry. They run right across Siberia's frozen landscape. No one could believe the legendary land of cold could get warm enough to thaw. Now permafrost has lost its permanency. And half of everything humans built in the Arctic will need endless repairs or be abandoned. Over three million people now live in the Arctic. About a third of them are indigenous or local ethnic groups. The rest are settlers who came for mining, oil and gas, and lately for shipping. Almost all of them depend on fossil fuels to survive. The study Annette Barsh led, based partly on Copernicus satellite's eye in the sky, found 38% of all new human development built on the at-risk permafrost is for the oil and gas industry. Human addiction to fossil fuels is the biggest single driver of Arctic incursions. The source and cause of climate wrecking for the whole world is expanding north towards the pole. We can't let that happen. In the Arctic, solar power can only work for a few months a year. The place goes sunless and dark for months every winter. Wind turbines can work in the Arctic, just as they currently keep turning at Antarctic bases. But these days, homes are heated with fossil fuels. Cars, trucks, and snowmobiles burn gas or diesel. Every industrial operation there needs them. Roads are paved with fossil fuels. Food, computers, everything is delivered by gas and oil. The harsh fact is, except for a few hunters and trappers, human development in the Arctic is more dependent on fossil fuels than anywhere else on Earth. Now we find burning those same fossil fuels means half of everything in the far north will need even more fossil fuels to repair or rebuild, in some cases, every year. And that unstable infrastructure is increasing as humans see the Arctic as a new frontier to plunder. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. About 24% of the Northern Hemisphere land is heading towards thaw. It is one of the first planet-scale impacts of climate change. How many people, buildings, and other human projects are at risk, and how soon? We just found out with an amazing new map of everything human within 100 kilometers of the Arctic coast, and it's coupled with the latest estimates for permafrost thaw. The paper is called Expanding Infrastructure and Growing Anthropogenic Impacts Along Arctic Coasts. We reached the lead author, Dr. Annette Barsh. She is a member of the Austrian Polar Research Institute, a lecturer in prestigious universities in Austria and Germany in the past, and now heads her own research company called B.Geos. Her current project is mapping the permafrost for ESA, the European Space Agency. From Austria, Annette Barch, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Yeah, hello. When it comes to human development in the Arctic, why do we need machine help to analyze all that satellite data? Why not just count stuff on Google Earth? So the Arctic is really huge. Well, we think that uh, it's, it's rather empty or <laughs> there are not many people living there, but actually it's, that's not the case. So 
So you have several hundreds of settlements across the Arctic, indigenous communities, and there are also industrial developments. There's quite high diversity in um, what we are looking for. And in addition, the Arctic is a quite diverse place. So we have different uh, kind of tantra environments, and uh, actually we also find forests on permafrost. And in order to identify whatever there is on the land cover, we need really precise information. And this, for us, means a very good spatial resolution, so really high detail. Well, there are satellites which can provide us this detail. A very convenient type of data is provided by the uh, European Copernicus program that allows us to look at the Arctic with a 10-meter resolution. And then but, uh, thinking about the entire Arctic, uh, this means eventually that we need to use a lot of data. It's very demanding regarding uh, data processing. Just storing the data is demanding. So that's one part of the story. And another part is how to identify what is relevant for infrastructure uh, and if we think about settlements. And how can we distinguish that from other land, typical land, tundra, shrubs, rivers, and so on. So if we, if we open Google Earth and look at that, it's, and you look at it, it's, it's so clear. It really, you see, okay, this is a road. This is a building and so on. But we need to teach somehow the computer to automatically to identify this. And that's where it's becoming difficult. So that's not so easy. So there are some traditional approaches which are just based on the, how something is looking like, you know, what color it has. But there are some, there are like a, a riverbed, which is for some time without water, may look the same like a gravel road. This is not so helpful in this case. So is human activity in the Arctic increasing, and how would you know that? Yes, so we can back uh, go back in time with the satellite data, not very far back in time, unfortunately, but for for several um, decades. So we can we have really good records going back to 2000. But we cannot really detect the settlements themselves uh, going back to 2000 for the entire Arctic, because that would require. Uh, very good spatial detail or spatial resolution. And this this high resolution we only have available for yeah, a bit more than five years, at least for with the circumpolar coverage. So when we go back in time we need we use other sensors which are which provide a bit coarser uh, resolution detail. They do not provide infrastructure but they can give us information about vegetation. And this is quite uh, useful in this case because what happens when uh, some something is built or some so in, normally some, the vegetation is removed yeah? so we have a change from from shrubs to, to to a road surface or something like this that's what we can can see in these uh, vegetation records so we are looking at uh, vegetation trends so how what is the change in in greenness and when we see a very strong change, that's usually due to human activity. 
So now we have, uh, from the last five years, we have this really detailed record, uh, the 10-meter resolution for the settlement and infrastructure. So we combine that with the vegetation trend. And uh, all these current infrastructure, which has, has, a, has a strong decline in vegetation since 2000, we know. So this has been uh, built very recently. And what we found with our analysis was that for the Arctic, within this uh, 100-kilometer zone of the coast that we looked at, 15% of what we detected has been built or is new after 2000. And it largely can be uh, uh, associated with uh, oil and gas industry, but also in some cases with, uh, with mining. How can anyone map where the ground is frozen and, and how deep it's frozen over such a large area? Presumably satellites cannot measure below-surface temperatures. Yes. Yeah. This is extremely challenging because we, with the satellites, we cannot look into the ground. We only see the surface. So, but for the surface, we have several options. We can, just, we can measure the temperature yeah, by looking at the, the thermal infrared. So that gives us uh, some, some good indications of uh, seasonal and annual uh, changes in, in surface temperature. And then a, a second approach would be to use uh, radar data, microwave observations, as these type of observations are very sensitive to uh, changes of what we call the, the dielectric uh, properties, which also change with freezing and thawing. But most convenient are these uh, land surface temperature measurements from space. These can help us to to model the temperatures in the ground. So we need to make some assumptions about what are the soil uh, properties. So what is the the heat conductivity? How well is the are these temperature variations in the air? How well are they transferred transferred into the ground? There is some buffering due to uh, vegetation, soils, uh, specifically organic-rich soils on the top. And there is some, some insulation due to snow cover. Well, we have a snow cover in most of these areas for a long time during the year. And if the snow is uh, deeper than, let's say, 40 centimeter, then... Uh, we have a quite good insulation. So the, the, what is happening in the ground is decoupled from uh, what is happening in the air during, during the winter time. So this is really important to consider in this case. So if you take all this information together and the, the temperature at the surface, the uh, presence of snow, the type of soil, uh, and we combine that so that that can model the temperature in the ground. So we have a quite good understanding based on satellite data or where we can potentially find permafrost in the soil. And that also gives us some a good estimate on how deep the surface is thawing every, every summer. By definition, we do not find permafrost at the very surface because the, defin uh, the definition is that permafrost is grounded stays continuously frozen for at least two years in a row. But at the surface, we have some thawing. 
when the snow goes and the temperatures go up, we have some thawing at, at the surface. And the depth of the thaw, it, uh, might, it's usually several tenths of a centimeter, can be also several meters uh, deep, this uh, what we call the active layer on top of the permafrost. Well, let's talk about the impacts a little bit. I mean, we have Canadian engineers who say thousands of miles of roads in Canada's north are at risk as permafrost thaws. Even the Chinese have to constantly rebuild a key road into the high plateau of Tibet for the same reason. What happens to roads when the permafrost, when it all becomes sort of liquid under there? Due to the permafrost, there, there is some damage to roads. It also depends on uh, what measures have been taken during uh, the time when the road was built. So there, there are some possibilities how uh, the ground could be protected say, from the influence that the road building itself has. So this is usually accounted for. But uh, what one also needs to consider is that there is the, in addition to, to the seasonal uh, variations and the impact of disturbance by the road building itself, so that we also have the increasing ground temperatures due to climate change. So we have uh, a, a deeper thawing uh, of the ground, which can lead to additional instability. And that needs to be considered when building new infrastructure, that the ground could thaw even deeper. Uh, otherwise, this can uh, lead to some yeah, damages of the road and damages of the, the infrastructure. And what about pipelines going across uh, Russia's Arctic lands? Are they in, at risk as well? Yeah, the uh, most of, or quite a large part of the oil and gas industry uh, in uh, extraction areas in Russia, they are actually located on permafrost or in regions where we have permafrost at the moment. And specifically, Western Siberia is an area where we expect that uh, the ground temperature is changing uh, very um, rapidly in the next uh, decades, so that where even permafrost uh, is, is uh, disappearing in some areas. So this uh, actually means that a large uh, part of this infrastructure will be affected and it needs to be considered regarding the maintenance of these really long pipeline networks, which actually have uh, been built only very recently. That's something that we have been, uh, that we identified with our, um, in our new study. Judging from the results of your team study, it seems that half of everything humans have built on the ground will thaw at least two meters deep by 2050. And I wonder, considering the early state of Arctic science, how certain are we about the timing of permafrost thaw? Could it be less than your paper's conclusions, or could it be could it come sooner? It's ongoing, so we are uh, certain about this. And uh, what uh, also other studies showed is that compared to what we expected a, a few years ago or so, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, things have changed much quicker than expected. So this is depending on now the model that you are using or the approach that you are using to predict how, how permafrost will, will change in the future. Of course, you get different results. But the, from experience from the past, uh, it seems that uh, changes are 
going on much quicker than expected. And this specific uh, region that, or these, these transition zones that we identified in our area, which are really, which will undergo rather soon changes, those are areas where most of the studies uh, which look into these issues see changes in, in the next decade. So we are quite certain about that things will change in, in certain regions. The, the exact magnitude, magnitude, okay, it might uh, be a little bit different, but there will be certainly um, some change. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with our guest, Dr. Annette Barsh. She is lead author of A New View of the Arctic, where human developments are at risk as permafrost thaws in a warming planet. I didn't see in this study the erosion of coastlines from other climate-driven forces like the lack of sea ice protecting the coasts from waves, uh, from rising seas and more extreme storm events. How does all that fit into permafrost instability, or, or does it? Were you just looking at the inland parts? Well, in the, that specific study, we just looked into the inland part, but actually the motivation for our study, that was uh, driven by what is changing along the coastline. And here it's uh, really important on what is happening on the ocean or what is happening with the sea ice. How long uh, is the ice-free period? Because that uh, determines in many regions the, the rate of coastal erosion. So the longer it's ice-free, the, the more coastal erosion can happen because then you have the wave action. And these coasts, they are changing actually rapidly. We have really high rates in some areas. It can be you know, 5 meters per year, 10 meters per year in extreme cases. And that's due to the fact that there is a permafrost. So these, uh, we have also a lot of uh, ice uh, in the ground that melts while these, when these coasts are eroding. And all the infrastructure is under threat in these areas. So that's why we initially started to look at settlements and infrastructure in the Arctic. The largest cities and population in the Arctic are in Russia. Surely the Russian government and their space agencies are mapping it out. Are the Russians sharing data with Western scientists and are they publishing on this? Yes, we work a lot together with Russian scientists. And I actually just presented this very study uh, two weeks uh, or when in the week when uh, this study went online. I have been actually in Russia. I have been in Western Siberia at the conference with a focus on uh, permafrost monitoring and technology. And I've been presenting my results there, presenting it also to, to the local administration. And we work uh, a lot together with Russian scientists. Because they have, they do a really extensive, what we call in situ measurements. So they, they go there and uh, measure how the ground is changing, how the coasts are changing, how the temperatures in the soils are changing. So when we um, calibrate our models for the ground temperature change, this data that actually comes from, from Russian scientists. Now, regarding the um, the infrastructure and settlements for for the development areas, industrial development areas, they are also they are also doing uh, their own surveys for for a certain purpose. 
and they're specific for certain settlements. So what we are focusing on in our study is the entire Arctic. So our aim is to get the full picture of what is happening in the Arctic across all these different uh, regions, across uh, all different use types, like for uh, indigenous communities, uh, then the oil gas industry, mining areas, all of that together. So there are, of course, in in Russia, the local administrations and researchers there, they are aware of the issues and they are also investigating that. Engineers are discussing what to do, how to consider these changes, how to integrate uh, projections of uh, climate change and ground temperature change into their activities. So there's quite a lot ongoing in Russia, and we are cooperating with um, the colleagues in Russia. I'd like to see the techniques that you used to help us produce a a similar kind of planet-wide tally of increasing human impacts. And I wonder, has that already been done, or, or could it be done? Yeah, there are actually several really interesting approaches how one could do this, um, but they only they usually give part of the picture, and we have partially also used that. For example, looking at night lights. So that that's a really uh, well working, really cool approach to to look at how the human impact is or distribution is is changing over the entire globe. For that, the assumption is that there is some certain amount of light uh, being produced. And that's, of course, the case for when we think about industrial development, there's usually some, some change uh, in night light. But that specifically points to sources of light. And then there's more infrastructure. So many of these roads, they don't, do not have lighting uh, in, in the night. And then there are also really nice, uh, also already long-term records on uh, built-up areas on a global scale. And they are based on various types of global um, data set, and they are confined to where we have high density of buildings so that they they can be mapped with comparably coarse spatial resolution satellite data. But they are usually leaving out these really small settlements, but they give us a good idea about uh, big, bigger cities. But they also then exclude these, like like roads and uh, smaller patches of infrastructure. What we develop for the Arctic is a specific approach which goes beyond these globally available data sets, which focus on to build up or denied lights. This is this is very demanding, and then stop making that for the entire globe. That would be really a big uh, job because you need to uh, also consider different types of environments and different types of infrastructure that it occur. So actually, similar types of studies as we have done for the Arctic are made for uh, like Africa, some regions. So machine learning has been tested also with the same type of data that we have been using. So it's, it's, it's used in areas where you'll have no good records from the local governments on infrastructure. There it's very useful. But on a global scale, uh, that, would be, that would be really, really uh, very demanding and difficult to implement. 
So one end of the earth is thawing, and it's not really reported much in the evening news. It's far away, and we think, well, few people live there. I don't know. We don't really know much about it. But I said in the introduction, this might be one of the first planetary-scale signs of climate change. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes, we see really large uh, changes in the Arctic. Temperatures increase much more in the Arctic than in other uh, areas. So we see this when we look at sea ice. So there you can really see the changes. But changes are also happening on land. And this, there are several millions of people actually living in, in the Arctic, uh, in coastal regions. And they are directly affected by climate change. And it's they are directly affected by the changes which are already uh, visible there. So it's really important um, to quantify what is happening there. What is the impact on the local population? And in the long term, it also then affects us, us living outside of the Arctic. When we see we have these changes in ground temperature, this affects material, what is carbon, what is currently stored in the ground. So it's currently frozen. Climate change with increasing temperatures, yeah, soil may thaw, and then this carbon goes into the atmosphere in addition to what we already bring into the atmosphere. So that's then uh, going to increase, to further increase uh, temperatures. So it's not just the, the increasing temperatures that we are seeing now. So this is, we will see some impact here from the carbon which... Uh, goes into, in addition, into the atmosphere from the thawing permafrost. Why did an Austrian scientist with a doctorate from a university in Britain become engaged with changes in the far north, Annette? Well, actually, I have been, myself, I have been uh, interested in the Arctic already since my time in school. Already when I was studying, I was uh, focusing on the Arctic and have been traveling in uh, the Arctic. So I can't really say why that has been, or why I've been interested already to that for a long time. I've just been fascinated by these regions since I was uh, a child. And then in addition, uh, we have now these global changes ongoing, climate change ongoing. So there's really a need to study what is ongoing there. And you, you can see the changes there. And that's something what is also driving my research interest, my the scientific interest in, in these regions. We've been speaking with Dr. Annette Bart, expert researcher and head of the Austrian company B.Geos. You can find links to this new view of the thawing Arctic in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Annette, thank you so much for sharing time with us. Thank you. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. These days, it is fashionable to talk about humans and agriculture moving northward to escape burning heat further south. It is a stupid dream, a lie we tell ourselves for comfort. When you can find Arctic soil at all, it is thin and too acidic to grow much. The growing season is short to non-existent, due to frost that can come any month of the year. Agriculture is not going to happen in the Arctic on any scale to support cities there. Pretending the Arctic is some kind of lifeboat for overheated earth is madness. 
That is just another escape dream like colonizing Mars. Give it up. With the climate emergency, we need to reverse that dream. We are at the choke point when there is no room left in the atmosphere for more emissions. In this severe emergency, which it is, masses of humans need to withdraw from the Arctic until a civilization without fossil dependency can emerge. We also need to wait until the land there stabilizes and nature adapts how she can. At the other end of the world, Greenpeace demanded Antarctica be declared a world park. In 1991, members of the Antarctic Treaty agreed a minimum 50-year prohibition on mineral mining there. As fossil-dependent development in the Arctic threatens the livable climate of the whole world, it is time to prohibit further growth in that far north and begin a plan of withdrawal, starting with the oil and gas industry. All new oil and gas exploration there must be banned. Existing wells and pipelines need to be dismantled and cleaned up for the sake of our kids and our grandchildren and all the other species. Yes, it is possible the fossil gangsters who dominate economies of northern countries would start a world war before they give up their dreams to drill and mine out all the Arctic land and sea. Yes, homes and industry in Europe Canada and the U.S. need to find safe energy fast as the Arctic taps turn off. The same governments have to stop building their fragile territorial claims by subsidizing settlement and development in the Arctic. Major banks need to end loans for Arctic projects. Nobody needs to invest in wrecking the planet, especially when the Arctic trigger for cascading tipping points is there. Until a new fossil-free and sustainable civilization comes, let the great withdrawal from the Arctic begin. That is what reality demands for our common survival. Get out of the Arctic and leave it alone. Pass it on. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about our world. 